Uh, as we get started today, that song we just sang was powerful. We were talking about, you know, trusting the Lord in the middle of the oceans. Oceans can represent, represent a scary time, right? Where the water is deep and we don't know what's going to happen. And to be able to say to the Lord, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen in my life, but what's in front of me seems overwhelming. And, but I'm going to trust you. But it's not just what might feel overwhelming. It might also be what feels actually terrifying. Like, I'm terrified. Maybe it's not so much an ocean as much as it is a, a threat or a fear. Maybe, it's, maybe it's, uh, it's a battle you have to face. Maybe you're facing something that is as terrifying as, as the sword. I had to bring this today as a prop. Because, I know, right? John Stark here. Winter is coming, okay? So, no, I had to bring this because I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to make some vacation, and uh, what better way today? I know the younger, I know some, some of us today will be engaged in the service because of a prop. That'll be like, I'm, I'm interested in that right there. And then for others of you who fall asleep or mouth off, I could also take it and just cut your head off. Just kidding, just kidding. Would never do that. But anyhow, I thought I'd bring that along. But maybe you're facing something that, that is like this. It's terrifying. And you're thinking, I don't know how to proceed. To proceed feels like doom. To proceed feels scary. Or... Maybe I'm just going to stay frozen in my tracks or even run away because of the things I'm facing in life. Well, I want to talk about that today a little bit with you as we get started. We'll come back to that later. But in the meantime, we'll be continuing our series through the topic of the books because that's what the Bible is. The Bible is a collection of books, right? So we're going through those together. Um, and as we do, we are going to... Um, We've been going through Israel's history, the Hebrew scriptures first, and we saw the period of time where you saw the Israelites in slavery, brought out of slavery. They were in the wander years, wandering through the wilderness. Then they ended up into the land of Canaan, the promised land, and we saw the time period of the judges or the rescuers. And then we moved into last week when I was gone and Anthony spoke so well, we talked about the time period of the monarchy, the monarchy period is beginning. And the first king was King Saul, right? We saw that last week, or you heard about that last week. King Saul, uh, the first king of Israel, and it started off pretty well. He seemed like a pretty good guy. He looked like a king, acted like a king. But then quickly, as time passed, his, his true nature came out. His true heart came out. Turns out he wasn't as good of a person in the long run as, as we, they, they thought he was and became a pretty rotten king. We didn't, we didn't end his kingdom last week. Uh, last week, as Anthony spoke to you, we saw the passages where his kingdom would come to an end one day, as the same prophet Samuel told him, but it hadn't happened yet. So, Samuel, so Saul is still the king in today's story and beyond, but the end has been determined. And so we started there, and we're going to shift our focus. So obviously, when, when we left off, Saul was very intimidating. He actually try to force Samuel to respect him in front of the people and tore part of his, his uh, guard closed, trying to force him to stay there and represent him well. And Samuel, as an old man, was probably terrified, but he stayed and, and, and stood firm and confident in God and gave Saul his message. And then when he went home, he wept and, and mourned. Because even though Samuel had wanted himself to, to stay the ruler a long time ago, and the nation rejected him in, in, in favor of a king. Samuel, at the same time, had anointed the king, Saul. And he felt sad to see the man that he looked at like a son, now being rejected over his own bad ways and his own wicked heart. And so though he had to rebuke Saul as a prophet, he went home, a little terrified, I think, of Saul, but mostly sad over the loss of a man that he cared for as their first king. We pick up the story today in 1 Samuel chapter 16 with verse number 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. So what's interesting in the story here is that um, God says to Samuel, look, I've, I've given you space to grieve. And by the way, that's so healthy, isn't it? Having that time to mourn and grieve when, when things happen that, that hurt us or break our hearts. And there was that space and time for them to grieve. But now God says it's time to move forward. At some point, you've got to move on. 
You can only stay in that mourning, grieving season for so long before it becomes a problem, becomes unhealthy. So it's time to move on, time to find the next king. Let's go forward. So the problem was Samuel was afraid to go forward because he knows that if he just walks to, to the story of Bethlehem, goes to Bethlehem as, as God told him to, with a flask of oil to anoint a new king, well, King Saul has proven to be increasingly violent, he might kill him for doing something like that. And kill the new king he anoints as well. So, what, so basically he comes to Bethlehem under the pretense of, well, not the pretense because it was real, but under the cover of offering a sacrifice, which would be totally normal for Samuel the priest and prophet to do. He's going to come to offer a sacrifice at Bethlehem as a spiritual ritual. And while he's there, he's going to meet with Jesse and his sons privately and anoint one of them to be king. And so he gets there. And it says in verse number six, when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab. Now, Eliab is the oldest of Jesse's many sons. And, and so Eliab is the oldest one. And once Samuel lays eyes on him, Samuel thinks to himself, surely this is the Lord's anointed. So I don't know what Eliab looks like, but he must have looked like a king, Right? Like Saul before him, who was head and shoulders above everybody else, a tall man. Maybe he looked at, he looked at Saul and said, boy, that guy looks like a king. How are we going to replace him one day? Ooh, look at this guy, Eliab, Jesse's oldest son. He looks like a king too. I think we found our king here. This guy looks the part. That's what Samuel thinks. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his outward, by his appearance or height. Now I want you to notice this verse. This is such an important verse. Everyone should know this and, and have this thinking in, in, inside of us as we live in, in, in this world. The Lord said, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. And then he makes a statement that is so, he says, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. But that'd be a good line for us to remember as we make decisions in life sometimes that where we think we know something more than God knows and we got something figured out better. The Lord, look, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. That's what God says to Samuel. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them, Samuel. Because here's why. People, people judge by outward appearance, right? That's what we do. Because that's not what we have to go by. We make snap judgments based upon people but by outward appearance, that person's got giftings or skills or the talent or they're attractive or they're sharp or they're impressive. People look judged by outward appearance, but here's the thing. But the Lord, the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord sees things that we can't readily see because people can put a facade on the outside. It's so easy to, to, to have a good resume and a good skill set and sharpen the right things that would impress other people. But the problem is, is that is there's something more important Saul had the outward appearance, but he didn't have the heart. And in time, we find that no matter how much talent you have and how much you have going for you on the outside, if your heart's not right, you won't last. And in this particular story, we see that God says, I'm, not, I'm done playing the, the look, the part role, the talent role. I'm looking for someone who has heart, the right heart, because that's the kind of person that can make it. And that's more important than talent or impressionability. So he moves on to the next son. And the next son, it says in verse number 10, in the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. So it's kind of interesting. So he goes past the first three sons were pretty impressive. And he goes to every son. And each time God says, nope, not him. It's kind of like the bachelor or something like that, right? He's got the, the rose in his hand. He's like, um, Pick me, pick me. Oh, not you. Uh, no, just kidding. And so he goes down the line. No one is, none of his sons are, are picked. He gets to the whole end of the line and says, it's none of these guys. And then I thought, I thought God said one of your sons was supposed to be the king, but God said no to all of them. I'm confused. I'm confused. I told you to bring all your sons here, and, I've, and yet none of them are chosen. So what's going wrong here? So then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? <laughs> well, I mean... They're still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats, you know, anything to call him. Oh, you want you wanted all my sons, even, even that one? I mean, you know, we figured you, it was something important, you know. He's watching the sheep and goats. Someone's got to do that job. It's important. So that's where he's at. But no, we, we get the rest of the boys here. Nope. Where, where's he at? He's out in the field with the sheep. He's a shepherd. 
And Saul's like, he was like, what? I told you to bring your boys. He says, send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. Now let me give you all a little life hack in case you didn't have this before. Put, put this in your utility belt for the future. If you want to get men to get a job done and done quickly, tell them that we're not going to sit down and eat until the job is done, okay? He's like, we're going we're gonna to wait and to sit down until the, until the boys are all here. Okay, get, get David here right now, you know. The paging David, we got to get you here quickly. So they bring David in to stand in front of Samuel. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes, and the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. Now, why does it say that he was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes? I think it was an important thing to say because of the same thing we said earlier. Earlier we said that, that, that Saul and even the oldest of Jesse's sons looked like a king. And I was like, oh, that's a good looking king right there. God says, no, I'm not picking by outward appearance. And so we saw earlier that God rejects that as the measuring stick, but God looks at the heart. And so we're, we're making that point already, but here's the why this is important, because it'd be easy for someone to make the inverse mistake and say, aha, so my takeaway must be that God intentionally hates a sharp appearance or is against somebody because he doesn't look at that. He's looking for apparently something different. But that's not the point. The point is not how attractive or unattractive or sharp or unsharp or kingly or unclean. It's not that one has to be bad or good. It's just that it doesn't matter. David was a good-looking kid to himself. But here's the thing. It didn't matter because God was looking at the heart. And the Lord said, that's the one. I see something that people don't see when they look at the outward appearance. I see beyond that. I see his heart. Anoint him. Well, verse 13, so as David stood there among his brothers, can you picture his brothers all standing there? Like he was even called to the first party, you know. We'll tell you how the feast goes in Bethlehem with the prophet David. We'll bring you some leftovers back to the sheepfold, maybe. All of a sudden, there's David late to the party, and they're watching, his brothers are watching him get anointed with oil by Samuel the prophet to be the next king. As David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he brought and he anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. So remember in those days in the, in the Hebrew scriptures we see that God's spirit didn't rest on people the same way as we see in the Christian story after Jesus died and rose again and returned to heaven. Now all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit as, as, through faith in Jesus Christ. Back then, God's spirit simply rested on people selectively for when they were given a job to do. When they were given a job to do, his spirit would rest on them in power to do that job. And now his spirit was off of Saul but he was resting his spirit on David to be the king one day. And Samuel goes back to Ramah. Well, meanwhile, speaking of Saul, remember Saul, the king? Yeah, that guy? Well, Saul's going through some tough times. Saul's going through a season of, I mean, he, he, he feels like God's spirit has, has left him as, as an anointing for his calling. And instead, it's replaced by a tormenting spirit. And Saul is going through a season of depression. And he's going through fear. And he's unhappy. And so his people around him in the royal palace begin to say, you know what you need? You need some good music. Because nothing makes you feel better than a good playlist. So they, they said, hey, can someone bring up the Apple, Apple playlist up here, Apple music, uh, po, uh, uh, get, get his uh, AirPods in here and let's, let's play us some music for him. And then someone else like, oh, remember, those aren't invented yet. Oh no, what are we going to do? So then they said, you know what, we got to find some live music somewhere. And then someone's like, I know somebody who plays really well. Over there in the city of Bethlehem, there's a family, a guy named Jesse. He's got a bunch of kids. One of his sons named David is amazing on the harp. I mean, that guy can play the harp like no one's business. Really? Yep. So, send for him. It was a crazy story because David just was my, just a few days ago, he's a shepherd. Kind of overlooked guy, right? Now he's anointed as king. Now he's back to being a shepherd, but an anointed shepherd. And all of a sudden, now the king's calling for him to go play the harp. And by the way, this is a little glimpse into David. We're, we're seeing more and more about who David is right now. What are we learning about him? First thing we're learning is that he was a shepherd. Second thing we're learning is that he had the right heart before God. And then the next thing we learn is apparently he learned how to play the harp somehow in the middle of it all. Did he go out there with the sheep and play the harp when he was bored? But he was good, so good that his reputation preceded him and he was brought to the royal palace to play for Saul. 
In verse 21, it says, So David went to Saul and began serving him, and Saul loved David very much. And David became his armor-bearer. I don't, that's funny to me. I don't know why. Because we're going to see later that he actually doesn't keep David around during times of war. So I guess what he was thinking was, we have to justify your full-time salary here. Harp's only a part-time job. So you're the harp player and my armor bearer, and you can stick around. I don't know. Either way, David, David stays around for King Saul. It says, then Saul sent word to Jesse, David's father, asking, hey, please let David remain in my service. I'm very pleased with him. And whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp and Saul would feel better. The tormenting spirit would go away. The power of music. Now, everything's fine until next thing you know, everyone's gearing up for war. A war is brewing. You have to understand something about those ancient times. Wars were just kind of part of the calendar. Certain times of the year you went to war. Like we, we talk about around here, we say in northwest Indiana, there's two seasons around here. There's winter and road construction, right? Those are our two seasons. Well, apparently in, um, in those times there was a couple different seasons. And one of their seasons, besides winter, was war season. And so during certain seasons, people would just get their forces together and either get ready to go conquer something and expand their coast or at least get their forces together to protect their coast from someone else who had that bright idea. So it was just a time when you expected to have conflict. And the Philistine army, the Philistines were a, a pretty powerful enemy against Israel. They formed their forces together and decided to attack Israel once again. Now, if you've been with us the past few messages in our series, you've heard of the Philistines before. Uh, God raised up the judge named Samson to deal with them in his own unique way. Um, the judge Eli had to deal with the Philistines. His sons actually died in battle against them. The, the prophet and priest Samuel, the, the rescuer Samuel, the judge Samuel, he uh, was leading during the, against the Philistines at, at one point in war. And then Saul, last week, as the first king, he kind of rose to the occasion to fight against the Philistines. And not initially, it was somebody else, but then later on, the Philistines. And then um, now, they're still around. Saul's still king. The Philistines are still a problem. And they've got their forces together. And they've marched against Israel. And they're on one side of a valley. And across the valley, Israel gets all their forces. And they rally together. And they've kind of just postured there, built, putting their tents up and settling down. Sometimes you can stay there for a long time until someone makes the first move, which would be the Philistines, since they were the aggressors, perhaps. Everyone's waiting for a battle on both sides of this valley. And David is sent home by Saul because Saul wants him to be able to survive this and come back and play the harp later when he needs it. So David goes home to watch the sheep. David's brothers get called to battle with the army. And everyone's waiting. But just when they think it's going to be a normal situation, things get a little spicy. It says in verse four, 17, verse 4, Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks, to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. Now, I know that Saul was tall, kind of rhymes, but um, I know that was, he was tall, but he wasn't this tall. This is a giant. In fact, as we, as we um, remember, if you remember way back when Israel was in the wander years and they were first exploring this land of Canaan, one of their fears of going in there was that there were giants in the land. Well, here's one of them apparently, Right? Nine feet tall, so he's a big, towering, intimidating presence. The kind of presence that if you were running around and having a brawl or you bumped into somebody, you would say, hey, you, look up at them, oh, sir, excuse me, you know. He's a huge guy, but on top of that, he's a warrior. He's a champion. He's training since he was young to fight. He's big, he's menacing, he's powerful. And he comes out into the middle of the valley. He taunts Israel. It says in verse 5, he, here's some details for those who care about the deets. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. When it says a coat of mail, it does not mean a coat of postcards and, and mail from your mailbox. Uh, mails are a reference to a kind of armor. You'd have a shield, perhaps, to be a shield to catch blows by arrows or swords. But you could also wear something on your body called chain mail. Links of, 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 of light weight and certain kinds of metal that would, that would make a, a blow by a certain weapon, a spear or a sword or a javelin. Maybe would deflect them so they wouldn't pierce and kill you. It'd be something they might wear under an overgarment as well or on top of their clothes or under, their, under a layer of clothing. And, and, and apparently Goliath is so big that his chain mail 
weighs 125 pounds. So in other words, it weighed more than some of, of you weigh. Not me, but some of you. It weighs more than you on his, as his armor on his body. And then it says this. He also wore bronze leg armor. He carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy as thick as a weaver's beam tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. Basically, he had huge weapons for a huge guy. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. He had a separate guy to walk in front of him with a shield, stopping any straight arrows. And then in case the things got through to him, he had all his weapons and his chain mail on his beam. So he was a force. He was a sight. He comes, and of course, he looks much bigger than his armor bearer. He comes walking out in the middle of the, of the valley between the two armies. He's going to start something. It says, verse number eight, that Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. He says, why are you all coming out to fight, he called. I'm the Philistine champions, but you're only the servants of Saul. In other words, I'm the champion of the Philistines. Where's your champion? You're just the servants to your king. Where's he at anyhow? Here I am. And so here's what Goliath says. He says, choose one man to come down here and fight me. So he says, I'll tell you what, let's, let's not shed all this unnecessary blood. Let's just have a, you know, proxy warrior. You just send one person out here to fight me. We'll fight each other. Winner take all. Here's what he says. Here's the deal. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. So you ever have someone make a deal with you that's so lopsided? Tell you what, you know, you're, you're, maybe your dad, you're like, tell you what, child, if you can take this uh, quarter out of my hands, you can, you can have it. And you know there's, never, there's no way they're going to get it out. If you can all arm wrestle me, we'll get ice cream, you know. So it's an obviously a, a, a lopsided deal. And so here's Goliath saying, I'll tell you what, when, when I win, I mean, if I win, then you all have to agree that you won't fight. You'll just surrender and become our servants. But... I'm sorry for laughing, but if your, guy, if your guy happens to win, I mean, anything's possible, then I'll tell you what, we'll be your servants. Never happened, but we'll just say that, okay? How's that sound for a deal? I like deals like that where it feels like a win-win for me. And then he, he shouts out, Goliath says, I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. I don't know why they just didn't say all their archers fire at once, just all arrows at one guy, just take them out real fast. Okay, that's over. But apparently they're all terrified at this. We gotta fight this guy one-on-one. -on -one. And they were deeply shaken. And so no one does anything that day. And the next day, Goliath comes back out in the middle of the field and makes some more taunts. Come on, who's it gonna be? And the next day, this goes on for 40 days and no one moves. Everyone just waits in terror. Because apparently you gotta honor this deal, you know? And so no one's going forward. Everyone's terrified. Well, meanwhile, back in Bethlehem, it says, One day Jesse said to his son David, Take this basket of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give these ten cuts of cheese to their captain. And cut the cheese to the captain? I don't know. Uh, see how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they're doing. So bring all of this food to the army. I want you to go there and I want you to see what's happening and bring me back a report. So David leaves the sheep with a keeper. He goes and he arrives at the military camp just in time to hear David come, for hear Goliath come out and do his daily taunt. And David shows up and says, what's going on? Here comes this giant in the middle of the, of the valley taunting them once again, mocking them and cursing them. And, and David sees that. And guess what else David sees in verse number, verse number 24? As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they begun to run away in fright. Everyone's running to hide. Oh, don't. Don't let them see me. Don't let them call out me. They're hiding. And then as he leaves, they begin to say in verse 25, have you seen this giant? The men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king, the king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. David's ears perk up. Did someone mention a check? You know, a reward? And so he's all interested now. And in fact, here's what the prize will be. Uh, the man says, the king will give that man one of his daughters for a wife. Well, that may be a good deal. Depends on the daughter. I don't know. He'll give one of his daughters to this man for a wife, and the entire man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. Now that, okay, get me out of taxes. 
Now you got me, I'll sign up for that one, okay? Tax exempt for life. Um, so anyhow, uh, David hears this, and so David asked one of the soldiers standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Is that what I heard? And then he says, who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? David begins to talk a big game. He's like, who's this guy think he is anyhow? Someone's going to shut him up. And so he's walking around talking. And the men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that's the reward for killing the giant. Well, just when it's going well, some opposition is going to pop up. Friendly fire is going to happen, right? He says in verse 28, but when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. Now we're starting to see a little bit into Eliab's heart, maybe seeing a little bit of the reason why, why God said to Samuel, don't look at Eliab's outward appearance. Because I look at the heart. Because God saw this. God rejected him. Maybe we're seeing a reason why. Because Eliab's got a little green-eyed monster going on here. He sees David walking around talking big. And, and he's watched David get anointed as king in front of him, right in front of his face. He's the firstborn. He's watched David get anointed. And then he watches David get called to the palace to play the harp for the king. Which is probably an awesome opportunity for David to see the royal palace and get an early start in learning the ropes before he was ever king himself. And Eliab is not happy. Now he's at the battle with his brothers and with other men. Here's his little twerpy brother, the anointed one, the heart player at the palace. He shows up and he's talking like, who's going to shut this giant up? And so Eliab snaps at him and, and chews him out. He says, I know your pride. I don't know, Eliab. You sound pretty proud yourself right now, buddy. He's just not happy. And it, it, I'll tell you what, this, it's hard when you're trying to do the right thing, when you're trying to do something that you think is important. And then all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, you face criticism. Out of nowhere comes drama. You ever been there before? You're just trying to do the right thing and here comes drama. Especially when it comes from family. Oh, what in the world is that? What's that? They got a whole thing going on here. But I want you to notice how David handles the criticism, how David deals with the drama. David says to his brother, what have I done now? I was only asking a question. And then he turns away. Check it out. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. In other words, here's what David did. He's like, whoa, bro. Back off, man. What's all this drama about, man? I'm just here. Look, I, we got something to do. Well, I'm just asking questions. And he just walks away. He walks away. He doesn't engage in it any further. This is such good life advice. And I'm going to just take a moment to park here because someone here today, we need to hear this. Because what happens to so many of us is some, something comes, someone criticizes us, and it totally derails us. Like, oh, I got criticized. It totally derails us. We turn and fight some other battle, get all worked up, and, and get our eyes off of what, mo what matters most. We get pulled into someone else's drama because they put our name in the, in the hat. Listen, it doesn't matter. They can spill the tea all they want to, but you can walk away and say, I'm not going to get in the middle of it. And David's like, you, you, you brought some criticism my way. And I'm going to sit there and say, hey, I ain't done nothing wrong. Back off, pal. And he just went, he didn't get stuck in the mire. He didn't sit there and say, I'm going to be all about, you know, you know who I am? Do you know who I am? You know, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that. He just says, whatever. There are more important things. Listen, folks, there are more important things that we should be focused on in life than the drama that, that people can bring, than the criticism that people can bring in this world to our doorstep. Learn to walk away and say, that doesn't matter. Something more important going on than getting in the weeds. Anyhow, that's just for free. And David's question, David's question was reported to King Saul. He got all the way to the king, so the king sends for David. So now David's in front of the king once again. In verse 32, David, here's, look at David's bold words. David's like, don't worry about this Philistine. I'll go fight him. David's a kid, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a you know, I don't know, he doesn't say his age. He's watching the sheep as an older teenager. I mean, don't worry about this giant, I'll go fight him. Look at, look at Saul's response in verse 33. Don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. 
You're only a boy. He has been a man of war since his youth. Like, since he was your age, he's been training. Look how big he is, look how strong he is, look how trained he is, and you're a kid. I'm not rushing out to fight him, and I'm more trained than you are, David. You can't possibly win. Now David's facing some more uh, negative feedback. But look what David does. Verse 34, but David persisted. And here's what he says. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. Well, that's nice, big deal. No, listen, listen, he's not done. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. And if the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this both to both lions and bears and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Whoa, big talk right there. David just gave us another glimpse into who he was. So can we kind of step back and regroup? What have you learned about David so far? He was a shepherd. Apparently he was a really good harp player. And apparently he was a pretty good shepherd too. Because he didn't just, look, you know what shepherds do? So if you're a shepherd, the only kind of shepherd that's gonna probably go out there and risk his life to defend the sheep is the shepherd who is watching the sheep that are literally his own, that he owns. But if a shepherd has enough sheep and enough resources to hire someone else to watch their sheep, well, a hireling's gonna run away at the sign of danger, like a wolf or a lion or a bear. Even one of your children would be like, well, Dad, sorry about some of the sheep there, but a lion or bear attacked them, and hey, it was a lion or a bear. What could a, what, what could a guy do, you know? I mean, go get killed myself? Certainly, you have to understand I'm sorry, I only brought, you know, I'm three sheep short today, but a bear attacked, and I mean, you have to understand, right? Seriously, like no one would expect anyone to go out of their way, but David took the job of protecting those sheep he cared for so seriously. He would charge at the danger with a club and scare it away, rescue an animal if it was attacking one. And if the, the beast attacked him, he's okay, we'll fight this battle. He said, I've killed a lion and I've killed a bear. And he's like, this giant out here, just a big bear. I've faced worse before. I ain't scared. This is where David's at. What a man. Seriously, like what an impressive person. He says, the reason I will protect this flock, and this might be, if you're thinking ahead with me, this might be a glimpse into David's heart. I will protect this flock at my own peril and my own expense because it belongs to my, to my father. And I'll risk my life to keep it safe. No wonder if one day he's able to take the nation of Israel and say, I'm going to protect these people with my life because they belong to my father. But anyhow, when David tells this story, Saul, it says, the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear, he'll rescue me from this Philistine too. And Saul finally consents. Saul's like, all right, go ahead. I don't know, I don't know if Saul was like so impressed with that story. He's like, really? Well, then you're the man for the job. Or maybe Saul's like, look, I don't know, but no one else wants to go, so it might as well be you. So I was like, all right, go ahead, and may the Lord be with you. Good luck storming the castle. It'll never work. You know, I don't know what he's thinking. He's like, go for it, kid. Verse 38, then Saul gave David his own armor. So Saul says, here, David, here, take my armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of chain mail. And David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. He's like, I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. See, here's what Saul's doing. Saul's like, if you're going to go fight Goliath, who's obviously bigger and more talented than you, then here, let's go fight him on his terms. He's wearing a bronze helmet. Here's a bronze helmet for you. He's got a coat of mail on. Here's a coat of mail for you. And David's like, I don't know, I've never done this before. Like, I have zero experience. I can't fight this guy on his terms. So instead it says, so uh, he picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Because David did know one weapon. He knew a slingshot. And apparently, as we're going to see, David had a lot of experience with a slingshot. Out there watching the sheep, perhaps he just took time picking up rocks and flinging them. I don't know if you've ever done it before. You had something you like to throw. Some, I got real good at something because of just hours of practice. I was in, um, I was in Lake uh, Michigan, like here on Lake Superior this week. 
Um, a few times, and I, we would have calm water, we'd be skipping stones. And I've got, I'm pretty good at skipping stones. You know, I've done it so many times. I can get them going really well, you know. You know why? Because I've done it over and over again. It's called the 10,000-hour rule. The 10,000-hour rule, put a lot of time into something, you become good at it. And David's like, I have zero hours in wearing a bronze helmet and chain mail and your weaponry. I can't go fight this guy in his terms. I'll lose. But I know me a slingshot really well. I can hit, I can hit a small target a long ways away. I'm fine-tuned. So he goes out and says, let me use what I know. Gather some stones, put them in a shepherd's bag, and then armed only with his shepherd's staff and a sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. What a sight. Can you imagine everyone out there? Here comes the giant. Oh, wait, someone's coming to fight him. And here comes David, the boy. You know, not quite full-grown man yet. Close. He's got a shepherd's staff. He's got a slingshot. He's definitely not dressed for the occasion. It says in verse 41, Goliath walked out towards David with his shield bearer ahead of him. That makes me laugh right there. Like, here's Goliath. Send your best man to fight me one-on-one, him against me and my armor bearer, of course. So, so Goliath comes out with his armor bearer and he sees David coming out and he sneers in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. He sneers at him. He says, am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? What, you got a shepherd's staff in your hand? Am I a dog? You're gonna come play with me? And he cursed David by the name of his, names of his gods. Come over here, he said, and I'll feed your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Goliath yelled. And David hears the taunting and David speaks up. He says, you come to me with sword, spear, javelin. You got your big scary weapons. But here's the deal. I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. In, in other words, on your side you got the big scary weapons and a big mouth. On my side I got no big scary weapons, but I got God. And I'll take God and no weapons with you against you any day of the week. I ain't afraid because I know who God is and I know who I am and I'm not afraid of you. Everyone else is like hiding like, what's he saying? David says, today the Lord will conquer you. And he tells him what he's going to do. He like tells him, the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and I'm going to cut off your head. Just so you know ahead of time what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen, okay? And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. Well, it was time. The, the UFC fight, the talking and the jabbering's done. The, the posturing's over. Now it's time for the opening bell, you know. So, so all of a sudden, Goliath starts over to face and to come, confront David. And it says in verse 48, as Goliath moved closer to attack, that David quickly ran out to meet him. David wasn't waiting around. Goliath starts heading his way. He's like, let's get it on. He starts running, just full tilt running at the giant. Like he's like, let's, let's get this over with. Can you imagine everyone there watching this scene unpack? He's like, he's just running at the giant. And it says, reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling, while running at the giant, hurled it with his sling, and hit the giant, hit the Philistine in his forehead. Of course he did. He knew how to fire that thing with pinpoint accuracy. And the stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. He, it was a first round TKO. Not even T, it was KO. Okay? I mean, it was like he just hit that stone in his forehead and, and it was like lights out, man. The guy just went plop down on the ground. And picture everyone just watching the, them running and all of a sudden flop. And David's still running at the body of the collapsed giant. I don't know what the armor bearer did, but David runs right past him. And it says so David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. And then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. And David used it to kill him because he wasn't dead yet. And to cut off his head. Cool, depends on who you are. It's like either gory or great right there. Yeah! He cuts off his head. <laughs> and so what do the Philistines do? The Philistines are like, oh, we had a deal. If they beat our guy, we're going to be their servants, right? So we, no, 
They, they never thought they'd lose. It was a safe bet. So as soon as Goliath is dead, they're like, run! You know, they're like, psych! And they all take off running. And so Israel starts chasing them. They're all, they're all brave, like, yeah, David, let's go! So they chase after the Philistines, and they defeat them that day. Interesting here, it says in verse 55, as Saul watched David go out to fight the Philistine, as he was even going out to fight the Philistine, Saul says to Abner, his, his, uh, basically his protective military guard, Abner, the commander of his army, uh, Abner, whose son is this young man? That's a weird question, isn't it? I thought he was playing your harp earlier. You loved him. Was Saul not really paying attention to the people around him and didn't know who he had? Or did Saul, or, or did Saul know David, but he's like, I thought he was just a harp player. He seems kind of brave out there. Who is this kid? And Abner's like, I don't really know. Well, find out who he is, the king told him. And as soon as David returned from, this is funny to me, I don't know. It's gory, but it's funny. As soon as David returned from killing Goliath, Abner brought him to Saul with the Philistine's head still in his hand. He didn't want to give it up. So he walks in like, um, uh, here's David and a giant head. He's like, you called, you know. And so Saul looks at him and says, tell me about your father, young man. Like, you know, did he make more of you? I don't know. Uh, Saul said, and David replied, uh, his name is Jesse, and we live in Bethlehem. Noted. <laughs> I'm going to know who you are. Now, we're going to stop the story there today. We're going to look at a couple quick things before we're done, but we're going to stop the story here today. But we're just getting started. David, there's so much written about David. It's going to take us a few weeks to get through it all. And I'm glad because to be honest with you, I love the story of David. I, a long time ago when I was doing this in longer form multiple times a week, I wanted to do a, like a 30-part series on David. We're not going to do a 30-part series on David here. But there's so much interesting. Someone ought to make him into a Netflix series or something. So interesting. Um, but we'll stop here for today as far as the story goes. What's interesting is that way back in the beginning, he didn't seem to be that impressive based on that outward appearance. Or his height. But God says, I'm looking for a different set of skills. I'm looking for heart. I'm looking for the heart, and I see that. And David's an interesting person here. David, as we've seen, he was a shepherd. He was a great harp player. He was a very good shepherd, protecting and fighting wild animals. Now he's a warrior killing giants. You know something else David did? You don't know this yet, but you should know. Maybe you do. He was, a, he was a songwriter. He was a singer-songwriter, or at least a harp player-songwriter. He wrote songs. Many of the Psalms in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's a section called the Books of Poetry, including the Book of Psalms. David wrote many of the Psalms. Some after he was a king, some before he was a king. Other Psalms were written by other people. And then David's son, someday, one of his sons would write other books of poetry that we would read later on as well. David was a very, po a very poetic guy. Very diverse person, very interesting. We're going to see him for a few weeks, but here's what I want you to see for the day. Everyone overlooked him. Like seriously, David was the right kind of person all along. But his brothers didn't see it. His brothers never saw it. Up until, up until the, the moments before he killed the giant, they still didn't see who he was. Saul, the king, didn't even see it. Even while he was playing the harp, Saul couldn't see the kind of person David was. He started to see it as he sent David out to battle. But God had seen it all along. God had seen it all along. And was waiting until, listen, was waiting until the right time to lead David into this moment. I want to just say a couple things to you as, as we're you're getting near the end here. So I want to say a couple things to you. Today, if you're like, well, what, what about me? Well, here's, here's a word for you. Work on your heart. Because that's what God's looking at. I know we're real good at polishing up our resume, working on our, rounding out our skill set, adding to our toolkit to be successful and influential or whatever we want to be in life. Let me encourage you today to maybe work a little bit. Don't stop working on those things. It's important to have skills and diversity. That's great. But don't overlook the importance of your heart. Because that's the thing that God is looking at. And if you have a heart for God, you say, I, 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 got, I got my heart in the right place. I'm a good person. I'm doing the right things that no one notices. Here's what I want to say to you today. That's true. If that's true. That's how David felt. 
But what's true about David is true for you, and I want someone to hear this today. Listen carefully. That God sees you even when everyone else overlooks you. If you feel overlooked today, stand in line. But God sees you even when everyone else overlooks you. So you say, what do I do about that? How do I get their attention? Don't worry about it. Just worry about your heart. How was David able to face the giant when everyone else was afraid? The same way he was able to wait to be king even after he had been anointed and back in the sheepfold and playing the heart for the current king. Because David, David knew what it meant to be a shepherd, but David understood something even more important than being a shepherd. David understood that he had a shepherd. And so do you. I know that the word, uh, you know, the derogatory insult today in today's angry, divisive political culture, people say, don't be a sheep. That's an insult. Maybe say, oh, I'm, not, I'm not a sheep. I want, to, I want to say something about that to you. If, if everyone ever mocks you and tells, calls you a sheep because of something they don't agree with you about, first thing I want to say is someone who would say something like that is without doubt every time a sheep themselves for a different, a different thing. Every time. So just ignore that kind of person right there out of hand. But we made something derogatory that's actually beautiful because we are all sheep to our creator, to our God who loves us, who cares for us. And that's a good thing. Don't let that become such a negative connotation. It would be a negative in the wrong misplaced area, I guess. But we have a shepherd. That's a beautiful thing. So David, who was all the things that we're learning about, was also a songwriter. And one of the earliest songs that David wrote, probably way before he was king, and while he was out there watching sheep in the field as an overlooked nobody, David wrote a psalm Psalms 23. We call it the shepherd's psalm. Perhaps you've heard it before. I want us to read it together today before we finish because it's so good. David says in Psalms 23 and beginning in verse 1, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. Now, listen, listen, listen here. I want you to read the shepherd's psalm the way that David wrote it. Make it personal. Because here's the thing. It's, it's not your, your, your talents are great, they're God-given, the skills you increase, the, the 10,000-hour rules you get at being better at slinging a stone or you know, being brave. That's all important, but the heart is so important. If you want the right kind of heart, look at what David did. David had the heart he had because David understood who he was and who his God was. And he said, he's my shepherd. And so I want you to internalize this because this is one of the best things that can help purify our perspective on ourselves and our faith and our lives. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He continues, verse two, he lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams like a shepherd would do. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths bringing honor to his name. I love that statement. He guides me along right paths. David said, it's easy for a sheep to sometimes think, I want to go over here instead. This is a better way. I know better. This is a better path. But the shepherd guides along the right paths. And David's sitting there saying, I understand that God's my shepherd. And I might choose a different path for myself. I might choose a different path for me. I might want to go my own way. But I need to trust my shepherd, that he is guiding me along the right paths, bringing honor to his name. He continues, he says, even when I walk through the darkest valley, even when I face the hardest times, when we're facing the oceans that we sang about earlier, or a giant across the field with a sword, or a bear or a lion, even in the darkest valley, even the very valleys of the shadows of death, David said, I will not be afraid. How can you not be afraid, David? Here's why he said, for you are close beside me. I'm not going to forget when I'm attacked or criticized or drama comes my way or an enemy's in front of me or a threat's nearby or times are bad or bad news has come my way or it's just dark. 
I'm not going to let the fear cause me to forget that you, my shepherd, are always close beside me in those times. Your rod and your staff, they protect and they comfort me. He says, you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. There's so much good stuff in there. I, don't, I could do a whole Sunday on Psalms 23. We don't have time anymore to do that today. But he finishes by saying in verse number six, surely your goodness and your unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. You see, David was a lot of things that we've learned about today already. But most importantly, he had a heart that God saw when nobody else saw. When everyone else overlooked him, God saw his heart. Because David was a shepherd, but David knew he, he had a shepherd. And I want to say this to you today and me. We would all be better off. We'd all have better hearts and be better people if we would learn to trust our shepherd. To trust him. So let me ask you this. Are you waiting for your opportunity? Are you the kind of person saying, I'm waiting for my opportunity. What's going on? What's God, where's God at? I better make something happen myself. Listen, trust your shepherd. He's leading you along right paths. Or maybe you're in a, a scary season of life and you're anxious about what's, where you found yourself at. It's a dark valley. Trust your shepherd. He's close beside you. Wherever you are today, it's the heart. If we're going to fix anything today, let's adjust the heart. Let's trust our shepherd. I was on a vacation this last week and I had to take prayer walks at night. It's just something I do. I like to do it anyhow, but especially on vacation, especially by Lake Huron and under, this, under the beautiful sky. And um, I always try to find a, a little breakthrough. And a, a, a word that came to me a lot this last week, I'll talk about it some other Sunday in, in length one day, but uh, a thought that came to me that um, just really God spoke to me about was the idea of rest, of resting in him, of learning to trust him and rest in who he is and what he's done and, and what he will do. And you can do that if you have a shepherd. You can do that if you trust your shepherd. And if we can get that done, we can fix what's going on in our heart. And if our heart's right, I think the sky's the limit. But it all has to begin with here. So rest in who God is. He's your shepherd. We have everything we need. I'd encourage you today to trust your shepherd.